Uh, we want to remember that the Ventura campus will be joining us for this sermon this morning. Let's let them know how much we love them. And let's open up in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. Easter, Easter is just about a month away. Easter is. And uh, arguably, Easter is the single most important holiday in the whole world. We love Christmas, but honestly, Christmas means nothing unless there was an Easter. Good Friday, celebrating that, wonderful. But the cross means nothing unless there was an Easter. This is, I would argue, the single most important holiday in the whole world Easter is. So what we're going to do is similar to what we did during the Christmas season. We're going to spend the month preparing ourselves to properly comprehend and celebrate Easter and all that it means, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. So we're going to take a few weeks and, and study that and make sure that we realize what it's really all about. It's strange that only 42% of Americans think that Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's more strange is only 51% of Protestant Christians think that Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hello. So we're going to make sure that we're not in those horrid numbers and that we understand that it's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to dive a bit into the theology of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, trying to develop for ourselves by the grace of God, through the word of God, a more robust understanding of what his resurrection means for his identity and his work for the world and for us. So here's a little outline that we'll be moving through in the next few weeks. Week one, which is today, we will be talking about the primacy and the proof of Christ's resurrection. Or said differently, did it really happen and does it really matter? And then next week, we'll talk about the doctrinal substance of Christ's resurrection. Or what does it mean? What does it mean for our justification? What does it mean for restoration? What does it mean for our identity? What does it mean for our death and eternal life? And then in the third week, we'll talk about the practical implications of Christ's resurrection. Why do I care in my life with my relationships and what I do and who I am today? How does the resurrection of Christ affect me? So we'll be talking about those things for the next few weeks and uh, should be a good time. Again today, the primacy and proof of Christ's resurrection. Did it really happen and does it really matter? So we'll launch from 1 Corinthians 15. We're just gonna read a sort of a backdrop here, verses one through eight. We'll be back in 1 Corinthians uh, next week. But let's just read this. Paul the apostle writing to the church in Corinth says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse one, Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Okay, here's the gospel message. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain alive until now, but some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep was a first century euphemism for a Christian who died. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, that is James, his half-brother being referenced there, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, said the apostle Paul. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this wonderful, glorious truth by which we've been saved. Thank you that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We rejoice in Christ, you're coming for us, you're dying for us, and you're rising for us. We rejoice in the fact that you live, and so we have been offered new life. 
And we ask that in this month, as we celebrate Easter all month long, as we prepare ourselves to think about, to ruminate on, to apply to our lives the truth of your resurrection, the Holy Spirit, you would teach us all these things, that it would be more glorious to us than ever before. Those of us that have been Christians for decades, revive our hearts for the wonderful truth of the gospel and the risen Lord. Those of us that are brand new, open our eyes to deeper understanding of who you are, Christ, and the glory of your resurrection and the resurrection that awaits us and the glory of us being with you. Thank you that the present sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed to us. And so, alive in our hearts to these wonderful truths and please, Lord, by grace and for your own glory, anoint me to teach and preach these things in a way that is faithful to your word, fruitful for your purposes, and brings glory and praise to your name. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's just talk about for a moment the primacy of the resurrection of Christ, or does it really matter? Now, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are talking about Jesus being resurrected in bodily form and in glory. The same body, but a different body. We're not talking about resuscitation, as was the case of La- uh, with Lazarus and others who were raised from the dead by Christ, who would go on to die again later. We're talking about resurrection in glory. It was still his body, wasn't it? It was identifiable. He still bore the wounds. You could still see the wounds in his hands and his side. He said, Thomas, go ahead, put your hands here when Thomas was doubting. It was the same body, but it was a different body. He was walking through walls and yet he could still eat, right? He would appear and disappear. It's the same, but it was different. Also promised to the Christian in our resurrection. We'll get into that next week. But we're talking about, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christ being resurrected after the cross in bodily form, not a resuscitation, not some sort of spiritual resurrection, but a bodily resurrection in glory. That's what the Bible is talking about. Now, why does it matter? Well, Romans 1.4 puts it this way. Jesus was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. That is the true identity of Christ. His personhood and his work hinges on the proof of his resurrection. He was declared to be the son of God who he claimed to be with power authority by the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection settles once and for all who he was and the validity of what he did for us. And the resurrection is part of the gospel, part of the good news. Gospel means good news. There is no good news without the resurrection. A so-called Messiah who died on the cross in Israel and remained dead is not good news. That's not the good news. The good news is that he died when he claimed to be an atoning death on the cross and then rose as he claimed he would three days later from the dead, thereby verifying the validity of his work on the cross to be a substitutionary sacrifice for us, pleasing to the Father, satisfying both the Father's wrath and the Father's righteous standard that we might be accepted by the Father. It's good news that Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. It's not merely good news that he died from the cross. The whole story is the gospel. The cross and the resurrection are a singular saving event. There is no salvation without the resurrection. And importantly, there is no salvation without belief in the bodily resurrection of Christ in glory. You get that? Look at Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. We see that belief in the bodily, physical, glorious resurrection of Christ is a necessity for salvation. So this suddenly becomes important to the Christian. Because it's something that we receive by faith. And what we're asking today is, is it merely blind faith or is it a reasonable faith that Christ rose from the dead? 
You can't be saved unless you believe that he was risen from the dead by the power of God. So the resurrection of Christ matters. Easter is a really big deal. The resurrection of Christ matters for Christian doctrine. It matters for the doctrine of salvation, for the doctrine of justification, for the doctrine of judgment, for the doctrine of glory, for the second coming of Christ. All of those things hinge on, are dependent upon Christ's resurrection from the dead. The resurrection matters for Christian doctrine. Look how Paul puts it here in 1 Corinthians as we skip down to verse 12 of chapter 15. He says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some in the church in Corinth who didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead of those who had died as Christians. And he's arguing against that view by arguing for the resurrection from Jesus Christ. And he's showing them how pivotal it is. He says in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Listen, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Is Easter a big deal? If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. It's a big deal. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, first century euphemism for Christians who have died, have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. See, Christianity is not only an issue of now, Christianity is an issue of forever. And Paul is saying if it's only a belief that has to do with now in this world, this truncated belief, then we're to be pitied. There's so much more to it. The resurrection of the dead because Christ was risen from the dead. He says in verse 21, for since by a man came death, referring to Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all, all Christians, shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ's of first fruits, right? The first one resurrected in glory. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Pastor G. The resurrection matters for all Christian doctrine. All Christian doctrine hinges on Christ's bodily resurrection in glory and so our subsequent resurrection in glory that we'll talk about next week. Now, secondly, the resurrection matters not only for Christian doctrine, but the resurrection matters for world evangelization, right, for world evangelization, because we must understand that what Christ said and claimed was radical. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? Nobody is getting saved. Nobody will experience eternal life. Nobody's getting to heaven except through me, Christ said. He claimed absolute exclusivity, In other words, he said, every other religious teacher that's ever been in history is false. I'm the only way, the only truth, the only life. Now, that's a radical claim. And there's been lots of truth claims throughout history and lots of religious claims and lots of so-called messiahs and saviors and prophets and all the others. What sets Jesus Christ apart from all of them is that he's the only one who ever predicted and pulled off his own resurrection from the dead in glory. He's the only one. Muhammad lies in a grave. Buddha lies in a grave. Confucius lies in a grave. None of their followers have ever even claimed that they rose from the dead. 
Only Christ has risen from the dead. Therefore, his words beyond anyone else in history have validity. And what it does, his resurrection from the dead, is it takes Christianity out of the realm of philosophy and debate and argument about what may or may not be true. And it brings it into the realm of historicity. Christ truly rose from the dead. Therefore, our faith is not blind faith, but it's a reasonable, historical, defensible faith. Christ claimed that he would rise from the dead, and he did. So that in world evangelization, the issue of whether or not people should repent of their sins and follow Jesus is not an issue of whether or not they like his teachings, It's an issue of whether or not he rose from the dead because if he rose from the dead, then all that he said is true and all that he said must be accepted as true. We don't get to fish through it. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to say, well, he's a good moral guy or he was a good teacher or he was a good prophet. He claimed to be the only unique son of God, the only savior of the world. And he... showed it to be true when he rose from the dead in glory. So if, if his resurrection isn't true, then as 1 Corinthians 15 says later on, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If Christ isn't risen, then, then don't worry about it. If Christ is risen, then he demands absolute allegiance. And all that he has said is true and demands full attention of the whole world. The resurrection affirms or denies the position and the work of Christ. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians that, the re- that Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection. Easter is a big deal. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So that begs the question, that brings us to the second and final main point of the sermon. That is the proof of the resurrection of Christ? Or did it really happen? Now, there's a lot of books written on this topic and I'll recommend a few to you because I like books. Anybody here like books? Okay. Hank Hanencraft has a great book on this called Resurrection. What an inventive title. Resurrection. It's about the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, why it is believable, why it is defensible. Wonderful, simple read. Hank Hanencraft, that's a good one. One that's a slightly more heady, but not too much, is by Habermas and Lycona. It's called The Case for the Resurrection of Christ. Again, examining the evidence compared to other events that happened in ancient history. How believable is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And my favorite book on the topic, which unfortunately is out of print, was first published in 1981, is The Resurrection Factor by Josh McDowell, who is a trained lawyer. And what he does is he puts the resurrection of Jesus Christ on trial. And he goes through all the evidence it would and would not be submissible in a court of law, what it would and what it, would, what it wouldn't mean. And then he, 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 he puts it on trial and see, would the resurrection of Jesus Christ stand in a courtroom? This is a fascinating read. If you get this and you can find out-of-print books on the internet, no problem. The Resurrection Factor, Josh McDowell, you'll read it in an evening. It's wonderful. So I want to give you those things because in a sermon of this sort, with this amount of time, I can only say a few things. So here's a few things that we will say that are proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, why we can believe it really happened. These three things. Number one, the empty tomb. Number two, the eyewitness accounts. And number three, every changed life. First one, the empty tomb of Christ is proof of his resurrection from the dead. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28. I feel like I'm talking so fast this morning. Am I? I'm excited. This stuff gets me going. Are you excited? I'm excited. Please be excited. Matthew 28. Let's read this account. From this gospel, Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. It says, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn, toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. 
And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Just pause right there for a minute. Don't you just love that picture of victory? Just the stone is rolled away and an angel's just sitting on it. I love it. Verse 3. And his appearance was like lightning and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him. These are Roman guards, okay? These are gnarly dudes. And became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran and reported it to the disciples. So here we have, as we have in all the gospels, the account of the empty tomb. That morning, the women went to the grave, not expecting to find an empty tomb, expecting to find Jesus in the tomb. You'll remember from another gospel that their discussion was, who's going to roll away the stone for us so that we could anoint the body? They were fully expecting Jesus to still be in the grave. But they get there this morning, there's this great surprise. Stone's been rolled away, the angel's sitting on it, the grave is empty, Jesus is nowhere to be found. Now, there are only a few options if the grave is empty. The first option is that the women went to the wrong grave. I don't know. It seems like a big mistake to make. So that's an option. They went to the wrong grave and there happened to be an angel and Roman guards sitting at the wrong grave and it was all a miscalculation. The other option is that Jesus had been, this is what some people say, revived in the cool of the grave. You know, he'd been on the cross and he hadn't quite died. And in the cool of the grave, it revived his body and he got up and he rolled away the stone and then the angel came and it wasn't truly a resurrection. He was merely resuscitated in the cool of the grave and walked out. Okay. The other option is that the religious authorities hid the body, which is what the women assumed. If you read John's account, they came and they saw the grave was empty and they said, the body's been hidden. We don't know where it's been hidden. They assume that the religious authorities had hidden the body. The other option is that the disciples had stolen it. Now let's talk about the disciples for a moment. The disciples weren't exactly super brave, gnarly guys, right? Other than Peter taking a swing at Malchus and hitting his ear in the garden that night, these guys got pretty cheesy when push came to shove. All of them bailed out on Jesus, Save John. John showed up at the cross. Everyone else bailed out. The women, can I hear it for the women? The women were there at the cross. The women came on Easter morning. The women come to the prayer meetings. But the men, as usual, I'm just kidding, kind of, sort of, were nowhere to be found at the moment. So is it a plausible explanation? As has been put forward, is it a plausible explanation? Certainly it's the most plausible of the four that I suggested to you. Is it a plausible explanation that the disciples stole the body in order to fake a resurrection, that they might say Jesus rose from the dead and start this thing called Christianity? Well, let's look at some of the conditions surrounding the tomb and think about the plausibility of that. Look in chapter 27, previous chapter. Starting in verse 62. Now on the next day, which is the one after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he, Jesus, was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'm going to rise again. So they had heard Jesus claim this. Therefore, they said, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Okay, so there's a few things going on here. We have 
Pilate being petitioned by the religious leaders to make the grave secure so that nobody could steal the body, so that there wouldn't be the possibility of that deception. Now, do you think a man like Pilate knew how to make something secure? Okay, do you think a man like Pilate knew how to make something secure? He said to them, okay, here's a Roman guard. Now, a guard was a, a, a guard troop. It was made up of four to 16 men of trained killing machines, Roman soldiers trained to defend six feet of ground in either direction. Okay, these were the killing machines of history, Roman soldiers. He gave them four to 16 of them and said, take these and these guys will guard the grave. Okay, remember how terrified all the disciples were in the face of those soldiers that came to arrest Jesus that night? They all fled. Are we to think now that the disciples came, did battle with the soldiers, overcame them and stole the body? These were killing machines. This is not Peter missing Malchus's head and getting his ear. These are Roman soldiers, four to 16 of them placed outside the grave. Then we have the Roman seal. Okay, the Roman seal was just like a, a leader would seal a letter at that time, right? Some sort of signet, some sort of seal placed on something that meant unless you are authorized to do so, you do not open this item. You do not violate this seal. In that culture in the first century, violating the seal of Roman authority was punishable by death. They would crucify you upside down until your guts ran into your throat. That was the punishment for violating a seal. And then there was, of course, the stone that was rolled in front of the grave. We're told in Mark's gospel, it was a very large stone. It would have weighed one and a half to two tons. So there was a stone in front of the grave. There was a Roman seal on the front of the grave, breaking it, punishable by death. And then there was the Roman guard stationed around the grave. And all Roman guards, their penalty for failing to protect what they were charged with protecting was death. No questions asked. You don't pull it off, you die, especially in the night watch to which they were assigned. So it doesn't seem plausible then that the disciples who were cowering, Peter, who in the face of little girls asking him if he was with Jesus, denied it. It doesn't seem plausible that somehow these men mustered up what it took to come and defeat the Roman guard, had the willingness to break the Roman seal, to roll away the stone. And even if they did, where did the angel come from? And even if they did, why was the body never found? Look, in fact, what happened. Matthew 28, verse 11. Matthew 28, verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard, okay, here's these Roman guards, came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. The angel, the rolling away of the stone. And when they had assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said to them, here's what you're going to say. Here's your alibi. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. Now, in light of what I just told you, you realize that that would be problematic for the Roman soldiers to say that. Verse 14, and if it should come to the governor's ear, okay, if Pilate hears about this, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. Okay, these are guys that are scared for their lives. They're saying, we're Roman guards. We are charged with guarding this thing. It's open. The body is gone. We're in trouble. They gave him a bunch of money and said, we'll protect you. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. We know from the writings of Josephus, that the Jewish religious leaders sent delegates throughout the whole land to say to people, hey, you're going to hear about this resurrection of this guy named Jesus, but what actually happened was the disciples stole the body. Delegates were sent to say that. And the the gospel attests, this is what was said even to this day. That is the time of the writing of the gospel. What is clear from this is that both the Christians and the opposing Jewish leaders at the time confessed the tomb to be empty, That's the salient point. All parties involved, including the guards who were now facing execution, all of them had to say, yeah, the tomb is empty and the body is gone. Look at this quote. Tom Anderson, former president of the California Trial Lawyers Association and co-author of the Basic Advocacy Manual of the Association of Trial Lawyers of America, that's very haughty, (laughs) said this, let's assume that Christ did not rise from the dead. 
Let's assume that the written accounts of his appearances to hundreds of people are false. I want to pose a question. With an event so well publicized, don't you think that it is reasonable that one historian, one eyewitness, one antagonist would record for all time that he had seen Christ's body? That they would say, listen, I saw the tomb. It was not empty. Look, I was there. Christ did not rise from the dead. As a matter of fact, I saw his body. The silence of history is deafening when it comes to testimony against the resurrection. That is, there is no one in all of history that said, no, 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 no. The body was there. I saw the body or I found the body or it was in the tomb. Even the opposition had to confess that the tomb was empty and the body was gone. Nobody in all of history has said otherwise. So the empty tomb begins to present to us proof of Christ's resurrection. But an empty tomb wouldn't be enough. It's not just that the body wasn't seen. It's that Jesus was seen resurrected in bodily form. So the next point is the eyewitness accounts of the risen Christ is proof of his resurrection from the dead. Again, you remember in Corinthians, Paul said, listen, he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And then he appeared to James, his half-brother, who during the ministry of Jesus did not believe in him and rejected him. And then he appeared to me, Paul, who was previously Saul, a persecutor of the church and a murderer of Christians, an unbeliever in Christ the risen Lord. So there are eyewitness accounts of the risen Lord. Now, the first ones to see Jesus were women. I don't want to risk offending you women. We live in a very different age now. But in the first century, women did not have the same status socially that they do now, okay? And so the the testimony of a woman was inadmissible in a court of law in the first century. In other words, if there was a court proceeding going on, they said, we'd like to call forward a witness. And and one of the lawyers said, okay, I'm going to bring up Mrs. So-and-so. They would say, what are you talking about, Mrs.? We don't accept the testimony of a woman in a court of law. That's just the way it was in the first century. Don't get mad at me. I apologize. It's not that way now. In fact, we believe women more than men. Now, (laughs) so therefore, if you were fabricating a story about Christ risen from the dead and you wanted through this fabrication to try to convince the world that it was true, the last people that you would write into the story as having seen him risen first were women. That's not what you would do because people would read it and go, what? I don't, I don't believe that. And you certainly wouldn't write into the story that the first woman to see him was Mary Magdalene, who was previously demonized with many demons and possibly it seems a woman of ill repute, perhaps a prostitute. She would be the last one that you would ever say. And yet the gospel accounts say that Jesus appeared first to the women and the first woman was Mary Magdalene. If you were making this story up, there wouldn't be anything more ridiculous to write into it. If you were making it up, you would have had Jesus appear to the religious leaders or perhaps Pilate himself or to someone that would have mattered testimony-wise in that culture. What that attests to is the truth of the gospel accounts. They're not making it up. They're saying, look, Jesus appeared first to the women. Verse 8 of Matthew 28. Again, and the women departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they shall see me. So the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ were women. Then Jesus appeared to the disciples And then we're told in 1 Corinthians that he appeared to more than 500. And then Paul went on to say in that text we read in 1 Corinthians, most of whom are alive to this day, but some have fallen asleep or died. Now, what is Paul doing when he says that? He says, listen, Jesus rose from the dead. That's part of the gospel. That's part of how we're saved. It's believable because he There was an empty tomb and he appeared to all these people and many of them, these 500 are alive today. In other words, you can go and ask them. You can go find these people and say, did you really see Jesus alive? And they would say, yeah, I actually did. I saw the risen Lord. When he says most of them are alive, he's saying, check it out. Do your homework, investigate it. 
It's as if someone today wrote a book about John Lennon rising from the dead and said, look, my mom, Terry Merrick, she was alive at that time. She saw him. You can go ask her, right? Like, no, you don't do that. If you're going to write a book about John Lennon rising from the dead, wait till everyone is dead who may have seen it or could deny it and then write in, oh yeah, all kinds of people saw him. I mean, you you can't talk to him now because they're dead, but trust me, lots of people saw him. Paul is saying, you can go ask these people. Eyewitness account. Now, of course, in a court of law, eyewitness account is the strongest sort of evidence, the second strongest evidence, eyewitness account. If each of these 500 witnesses were called to the stand and each spent just six minutes testifying in examination and cross-examination, you would have over 50 hours of eyewitness testimony. And then the other side would say, now we like to call forward those who saw Jesus in the grave or found the dead body or, or found where the disciples had hidden it or, or, or here it is. And nobody would come forward. Nobody in history has ever claimed that. Nobody ever said, I found the body or I saw him in the grave. It would be the most lopsided trial in the history of the universe. 50 hours of people saying, yeah, I saw him and not a single voice saying that I saw him dead or in the grave. Beyond that then, certainly, our side would have called up James, the half-brother of the Lord, who rejected Jesus and his ministry and his message until he saw him risen and then was converted and became a believer. Certainly they would have called Saul of Tarsus, now Paul the Apostle, who was on his way to murder Christians and had an encounter with the risen Lord and so was converted. That is the strongest sort of evidence admissible in a court of law. It's called positive evidence from a hostile source, a source that doesn't want it to be true, that it doesn't benefit them if there's true or it's his case, but has to say, yeah, I actually saw him, saw the persecutor, James, a half-brother, the denier. You see, but it's not just that people saw the resurrected Lord. It's that people were radically changed by the resurrected Lord. Every changed life is proof that Christ rose from the dead. Turn to Acts chapter two, please. Acts chapter 2. Think about for a moment what happened in Jerusalem after the supposed resurrection of Jesus Christ and after the day of Pentecost. Think about what happened. Peter and the others preached a resurrected Christ in the city where he was crucified. Okay, just days after, they preached a risen Christ in the same place where he was crucified. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ wasn't true, then Christianity never would have begun in Jerusalem. We would have waited until someone went to some far off land and they could say, oh yeah, way back there in Israel, this guy Jesus rose from the dead. Listen, there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook, there was no Fox News, no CNN, no way to corroborate or deny. You just, no, take my word for it. We're very far away, but he rose from the dead. You should become a Christian. That's not how it happened. It started in Jerusalem where everyone listening to the message, the gospel, the preaching could walk to the tomb and see for themselves whether, it was not, whether or not it was empty, could see for themselves before he ascended the risen Lord. The gospel of the risen Lord was preached in the very place where he was crucified, buried, and supposedly rose from the dead. It is the least likely place for Christianity to start if the resurrection wasn't believed. So let's look in chapter 2 of Acts at Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. Verse 22. Peter preaching says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus and Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now he goes on to prove this from the Old Testament, their scriptures. For David says of him, quoting David in the Psalms hundreds and hundreds of years before, 
I was beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope because thou will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy holy one to undergo decay. David is speaking here about someone who would live forever. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou will make me full of gladness with thy presence. Now here's Peter's commentary on it. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Okay, so you can walk in Jerusalem over to David's tomb and see that David is in the tomb. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon the throne, the Davidic throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, right? So Jews may have read that passage before and thought, oh, David is speaking about himself and his own eternal uh, throne. Peter has proven to them he was speaking about the resurrection of the Messiah, Verse 31, again, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we were all witnesses. Wow, Peter just hangs it all on the evidential resurrection of Christ in Jerusalem. He says, look, this message I'm preaching Figure it out for yourself. We all saw Jesus risen bodily and in glory. So from that moment of the sermon, he's either going to lose all credibility or something radical is going to happen and people are going to have to deal with the claims of Jesus who is resurrected from the dead. So what follows will show, right? They're either going to say, no, we didn't see him. We'll go to his grave and find him right now or something else. So look what happens. Peter continues preaching. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you see and hear. Speaking of the coming of the Spirit, Pentecost. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, another Psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. That's a little bit of inter-Trinitarian communication. The Father speaking to the Son through the Psalmist David. Verse 36 Therefore, his closure, all preachers have a closure. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said, hold on, excuse me. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, it was a much longer sermon than is recorded, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. He hinged it all on the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ in the town where it took place. And the first sermon that is preached, 3,000 people in a town of 25,000, 3,000 repent at the first sermon. Peter preaches another sermon in the next chapter. And by chapter four, after that sermon, we're told that the number of the men in the church was 10,000. Sorry, women, the women weren't counted in that, but they were there. That means the church has grown to what number? It's 20,000? How many women were there? Was it 50-50? The church is almost half the population of Jerusalem at this time. If anybody had ever presented the body or seen it in the grave or been able to refute the claim, there is no way that in that city that would have happened. That would be like we preached the gospel here in Carpinteria and 7,000 people came to the Lord. What could cause that in this Jewish city? but the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And everything changed for them. They stopped sacrificing in the temple. 
They realize, well, Jesus must be the sacrifice that satisfies once and for all, the fulfillment of those things. For these Jews in Jerusalem to stop sacrificing in the temple, to stop worshiping on Saturday, the Sabbath, and start worshiping on Sunday, the day the Lord was resurrected, to abandon the law for righteousness and put their hope in this Jesus, they must have known beyond a shadow of a doubt that he rose from the dead bodily and in glory and so proved to be the Messiah of Israel. There is no other plausible explanation. Nothing else fits the evidence of an empty tomb, the numerous eyewitness accounts, and this radically changed community. And then what happened? The world went on to be changed. In a couple hundred years, the whole Roman Empire was turned upside down at the preaching of this risen Jesus. What about the disciples who were so afraid the night he was arrested? Every one of them went on to be martyred for preaching the risen Messiah. Are we to believe that these cowards would have done that for a lie? Are we to believe that for the rest of their lives they would have gone on preaching and teaching, being persecuted and ultimately murdered for a lie? Maybe one, maybe two, maybe three, maybe four. Not all of them. John was the only one who died of old age and they tried to boil him in oil and it didn't work. What a nasty dude. They all went on to be martyred, but before Jesus was risen, they were all terrified. They must have seen the risen Lord and they must have been walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter, Peter stood up and preached before all Jerusalem the night that Jesus was arrested. He was cowering when little girls tried to identify him with Jesus. He must have seen the risen Lord. Again, James to the brother who had rejected him. Again, Saul of Tarsus, who was killing Christians, he must have seen the risen Lord. And you and me, we must believe that Christ is risen from the dead because my life has been forever radically changed, not by some dead Jewish prophet, by risen, living Lord. Here's a picture of my family in front of the empty tomb. I took them inside. And I held daisies in Isaiah's hand. And I said, where's Jesus? Daisy said, he's not here. And I said, kids, this is how we know that what we believe is true. Tomb is empty. Daisy, you've seen it with your own two eyes. So that when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And he who believes and lives in me will never die. Do you believe this? We said together in that tomb that day, we believe this. And that, my friends, changes everything. Jesus and all that he claimed is real and true. And so we have the same hope that Job had, Job 19. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body, bodily resurrection, I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. We believe it when Jesus said in Revelation 1, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. But look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Therefore, because this is historical, defensible, we know that we're doing the right thing and giving our lives to follow Jesus. First Peter 1, 3 and 4, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his grace, great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus from the dead. So now we live with great expectation and have a priceless inheritance.
So brothers and sisters, follow Jesus fully. Obey him as Lord. Live for his glory and his purposes and not your own. Look what Romans says in light of the resurrection. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, because he's risen, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. If it's true, he is risen. Then we have to live fully for him. And there's such good news ahead. If he is risen, there is such good news ahead. We end with the words of Isaiah the prophet. Because of the resurrection... God will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. In that day, the people will proclaim, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen? Amen. Oh, Christ is true. You are risen. You're the risen Savior. Whoever lives, we know that our Redeemer lives. Thank you that because you live, you save us and you give us new life when we put our faith in you. Thank you for new life. Thank you for abundant life. Thank you for the promise and the inheritance that we have in you. Thank you for the hope of resurrection that is ours. Lord, we just pray that at this moment in our life, these things would become so real and we would become so obedient to the risen Lord. Christ, you're the way, you're the truth and the life. Holy Spirit, enable us to follow Jesus with all that is in us. Lord, we're sorry for our excuses, our half-truths, our compromises. If Christ is risen, then Christ is to be followed, obeyed, and glorified in our lives. Help us to do this, Lord. Give us grace today to repent of areas of sin in our life, persistent sin. Give us grace to follow hard after you, even into difficult places. Give us grace to rejoice in the hope that is ours in the risen Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.